that's happening right now is we're just going to share uh, what we call uh, communion. Uh, some call it the Lord's Supper. Some call it a lot of other things. But the bottom line is it's just a great opportunity just to be thankful and remember something incredible that happened. Thanks, Scott. Morning, church. Now, before I forget, as the ushers come around, there is a gluten-free option in the um, communion wafers and whatever. So save that for the gluten-free people. They're a little bit different. Don't want to fight them. Anyway, it's such an honour to be able to come and share communion. I, I love it because it's an opportunity to come up here and just share the gospel, to share and reflect on what Jesus did on the cross, share on who he is, the hope that we have in eternal life. But over the last year or so, I've been sharing with some work colleagues about my beliefs, about what it means to be a Christian, trying to really answer some of their questions and focus on who Jesus is, focus on the gospel, focus on uh, the hope we have in eternal life. But one of, the, one of the fellas just a few weeks ago made this comment and it really struck me. He said, um, you know what, I don't think I really want to live forever. I don't really like the idea of eternal life. And I was just like, what? And he said, yeah, I'm just happy to live out this life. Thank you. I'm just happy to live out this life and be done. And I honestly didn't know what to say. It just threw me. And I quickly wanted to be like, oh, our, you know, eternal life, it's going to be awesome. You know, it's going to be uh, no sickness and no pain. And it's going to be overwhelming joy in God's presence. But his response was just, meh. And what I wish I'd said, you know how hindsight is great. What I wish I'd said was, you're going to live eternally no matter what. You're going to live eternally either way. The choice that you have now, the choice that's before you is how you're going to spend it. You know, we're all going to experience eternal life. But for some, it will be eternal judgment, eternal punishment. But for us, it will be eternal joy in the presence of our risen Lord Jesus. And so this morning, as we come around communion, and we reflect on what Jesus did on the cross, as we take up Jesus' mandate to do this in remembrance of Him, I want you to realize that as a believer in Christ, your hope is that you'll be raised to glory. You've got before you uh, an experience in heaven beyond anything you could experience on this earth. And J.R. Packer, this is one of my favorite quotes, he says this, he says, Hearts on heaven say in the course of a joyful experience, I don't want this to ever end. For the hearts of those in heaven will say, I want this to go on forever, and it will. There can be no better news than this. But the question is then this morning, how can we be sure of this hope? Because eating of this cracker and drinking this little bit of juice, it doesn't assure us of anything. It doesn't give us salvation. So how does it all fit together? Let me quickly share a couple of passages with you. Let's first look at John 6. I'm sure we all know this story. This is the, the um, time that Jesus fed that crowd of 5,000, probably 15 to 20,000 with women and children. But he literally broke bread and more bread appeared. He, he broke up some fish and more fish appeared out of thin air and fed this massive crowd. And afterwards, they wanted to make him king by force. But it's not why Jesus came. So he sends them all away. But the next day, the crowd comes after him again. 
not because they want to hear him teach or anything like that. They just had their feed and they just wanted it again. They wanted to see another miracle. But Jesus offers something much, much greater. And let me be clear, as we're going into John 6 here, this is not a communion passage, but it does set up the reason we celebrate communion. If you could turn me to verse 26, I think it'll be on the screens too. We'll start there. It says this, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, well, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, this is the crucial point. He said, the work of God is this, believe in the one he has sent. In these verses, Jesus begins to set up this idea of a person's work shouldn't be for earthly things, for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. And so they ask, quite rightly, well, what do we need to do to meet God's requirements? And Jesus couldn't be clearer. He says, believe in him who, the, who God the Father has sent. But just they, they weren't getting it, so he keeps going. Well, they asked him, well, what sign will you give him that we may believe? You know, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. But Jesus says to them, well, very truly I tell you, it was not Moses that gave you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said, sir, always give us this bread. Then Jesus says this, and it's outstanding. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, will, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I'll raise them up on the last day. The crowd around there, they were seeking to understand, well, what's Christ's work? What's the sign that he's going to do? What, what is he going to do to make them believe? But this is his reply. He is the bread that, of God. He is the one that came down from heaven. His work is to feed those who come to him in faith, to feed those who believe. And what it brings is everlasting life. But Jesus even goes on. Let me skip down a little bit to verse 47. He says, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I have given for the, for the life of the world. And then they begin to argue among themselves. Well, how can he give his, his flesh to eat? The crowd there is shocked, and you can probably understand, shocked at Jesus' statement, that he was the bread that came down from heaven. But Jesus reiterates uh, that belief is central to eternal life, that he is the bread of life, the bread that came down from heaven, the living bread, his flesh to be given for the life of the world. This is the work that Christ does in giving of himself his death on the cross. So when he says in verse 51, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. He's already made this parallel of, of eating 
as a, a symbol of partaking of the bread, partaking of his flesh. In other words, believing in him is his work. It is the requirement we need. So this is the parallel. Believing in him equals eternal life. Eating his flesh equals everlasting life. The, the eating here, the, the feeding on Christ, literally, is what, the word, is what the scripture says, is a picture of partaking in who Christ is and what he has done. His sacrifice on the cross, his flesh broken, his blood poured out. And as I said, this is not a communion message. But there are, are three communion messages, uh, three um, passages that parallel this one, that speak of the Last Supper. I'll just share with one this morning. Um, it speaks of partaking of the bread and wine during the Last Supper. And I'm sure we know the story. It's his disciples three days before Jesus' death on the cross. And in this um, picture, the, the same earthly bread represents the flesh of Christ. The earthly wine in, in the cup representing the blood of Christ. Let me read from Luke 22, verse 19. It says this, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. He gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Luke's account states that communion was specifically for remembrance. It's a memorial of what Christ was about to do on the cross. In John, Jesus is explaining that it is only through belief in him that we can receive eternal life. It is how we can know that we have victory over death and sin. Uh, and that we'll be raised to glory in heaven. But this belief is seen in actually consuming the life of Jesus. We must actually take him in. Let me, let me try and illustrate this. I went out for dinner with a group of friends a little while ago. And all their food had come out. All the dinners have come out except for mine. Who's ever had that happen? It, it sucks, doesn't it? Um, you know, they're all ready to eat, and I just had to sit there hungry. Everyone started eating, that was fine. But while everyone's eating, I'm still hungry. They're all eating around me, but that doesn't help me. I can't be fed by proxy. I can't be fed just because I'm around other people eating. I can't fill up on what they're eating. It's not until my meal comes out that I could take the food myself, that I could take it in, that I could consume it and be fed. It's the same picture here. We don't receive salvation in Christ from other people's belief. It's not from our pastor's belief. It's not from our parents' belief. To know eternal life, to know eternal life we must believe for ourselves. We must take Christ in. We must personally consume him. That's why it says, eat of my flesh. We aren't fed by other people's eating. We must eat for ourselves. In the same way, we must personally partake of who Christ is and what he has done with his sacrifice on the cross. So communion in the Last Supper, in Luke's account, is a remembrance of the reality of Christ's body broken, his blood poured out, that we might reflect on what we have already come to believe. Communion then serves to remind us of what um, we are to believe that Christ uh, actually was the bread of life, that he actually did the sacrificial work on the cross. We're simply partaking in an earthly symbol of bread and wine, or this morning it's a cracker and a bit of juice, having already partaken, having already believed in the reality that the symbol points to. 
that is that Jesus is the bread that came down from heaven. It is this belief that grants us eternal life. But it's at this moment of joining together in communion that we're reminded of Jesus' sacrifice, that through his death we have an invitation to eternal life. And it's through our believing that we've received that life here and now as we partake, we proclaim that reality until Jesus returns. And what I want to encourage this morning is that as we come around remembrance of Jesus and what he did on the cross, that it is tied to belief. As we remember Jesus' death on the cross, his blood poured out, his body broken, there must be a response. We remember what Jesus did and our response must be to believe. And John gives us this, the whole reason for his writing, his whole gospel is summed up in John 20 verse 31. He says, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you'll have eternal life. So as we eat and drink this morning, as we do this time of remembrance, let's remember who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the bread that comes down from heaven. Let's remember what Jesus did. He died for us on the cross. His blood was poured out. His body was broken for the forgiveness of sins. But we must respond. We must believe in Him. And in believing in Him, we receive eternal life. Let me pray this morning and then we'll eat and drink. Thank you, Jesus, that you came down out of heaven, that you are the bread that came down, that you lived that perfect life that we could not. We thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross, that for our sake your blood was poured out, your body was broken, that we may have eternal life. And the only requirement we need is to believe. We just thank you for this revelation, God. Amen. All right, let's eat and drink. Father, we just take that moment to be thankful and to contemplate the reality of what you've done for us through Jesus. And we can celebrate that. We can remember that. We can draw near to you as we just have these physical elements. And we thank you for what's been shared there. The reality of belief in Jesus brings us to that point of eternal life. And we thank you for that today. Amen. Hey. Amen. God made a way for us. It was through Jesus. And Jesus actually, when he came, he declared that. He says, you know, I am, I'm not a way. I'm not just one of many ways. I am the way. 
and I am the truth and the life. And, you know, you live in a world today where there's many options of how you could maybe, uh, maybe for you, whatever heaven may look to you, but there's only one way, and it's through Jesus. And it's the truth. <laughs> and uh, millions and millions of people all over the earth every day are, are doing what we're doing, worshipping this incredible Heavenly Father. I know there's many other belief systems that people have, but um, no one can make the claims that, that uh, Jesus did, that he rose from the dead. Our God didn't stay dead. Other people's um, uh, patriarchs and people who they believe in, they're, they're dead and buried and gone and finished, but not Jesus Christ. He's alive and well. And he can live in the hearts through the Holy Spirit of each of us, hey? Well, you know, this morning, I wanted to, uh, thank you, Scott. I just wanted to, what you shared this morning, I just want to continue uh, to talk because we started a little series um, a couple of weeks ago called, you know, uh, Money Matters. And and um, it was a topic that we get to talk about it, uh, once or twice every year. And I think it's a really important one. And, and um, the truth is, is that every day of our lives, uh, we're affected by money. We don't think about money all the time. We don't think about it every minute of our day. Well, I hope you don't anyway. <laughs> uh, but the truth is that we live a life and we're affected by the markets that are up and down. We're affected by the economy, the inflation, depression. They're talking about inflation's happening at the moment. Uh, they're talking about a lot of things and it's always on our news. And so money affects us um, whether we like it or not. And if we don't have it, of course, it's, it can be difficult um, uh, and we need to, and of course, we need employment, we need jobs, don't we? We need an income. So uh, all of that, I think it's important that we do give a moment in, in our year to talk about it because Jesus actually talked about money. Two-thirds of the parables that he shares, literally, either he refers to it or connects or talks about money or possessions. And so Jesus very clearly uh, laid it on the line and talked about many things about our possessions and money and and, um, and so I think it's great that we can spend a moment in time and just see what he has to say. He said something pretty important that I need to listen to because he said in Matthew chapter 6, 24, he talked about um, very clearly that there's something that wants to uh, rival your devotion to God. There's something that wants to come and replace God in your life. Let me read it to you, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Uh, either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. So devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and, what is it? Money. Uh, very clearly, Jesus laid it on the line, didn't he? Wow, what a challenge. And so we've endeavored, the first week we just talked about how money speaks to us, because money says certain things to us. You can say things like this, if I just had a bit more. You ever heard that voice? If I just had a bit more. Um, and so we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Pastor Mel talked about God being our provider or being the Lord who provides and our provisions. But today I want to just take off again. And because today um, money not only speaks to us, but money also talks about us. Because the way that we use our finance, use our possessions, use our money um, says a lot about us. Okay. And uh, that can be good or that can be not so good sometimes. And I want to turn to a parable, Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 13. And let me read from there. It says this, because Jesus is talking about a man who's quite wealthy. And, uh, 
and the way that he used his money and how money um, kind of showed us what it, it, it kind of spoke about him and it showed us what he's like. And so in verse 13, it says, Then one from the crowd said to him, that's Jesus, teacher, my brother, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And but he said to him, Man, who gave me, made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, This is Jesus, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. And then he spoke a parable to them and he says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentiful, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, You know what I'll do? I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater, and there I'll store all my crops and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have many good, many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, this obviously is a story, and I'll, I'll just close it. I'll just, I, I won't, um, I'll, I'll just stop right there because I've got a couple more verses of this parable to read. But I just want to give some context here. The farm has done well. It's been a good year. It's been a bumper crop. The rain has fallen when it's supposed to have fallen. The soil has yielded whatever crop it was. Maybe it was pomegranates or dates or olives or grain. I don't know. Middle Eastern foods, there's some of them. But he's just done well, and he's got plenty. And so we see he's, 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 uh, he's, uh, he's probably done better than any other year. Um, and that's good for farmers, because farmers can go through really dry years, can't they, in difficult times, and not yield the crop, and they have to wait for the next season. And if there's a number of seasons on top of each other, it can be very difficult for our farmers as we consider what happens even in Australia. But he's done well this year, so that's good. Um, that could be any of us. You know, we don't have farms necessarily, but our employer may increase our wage. That's always a good day, isn't it? Uh, he may, uh, maybe there's been a windfall of income, maybe through an inheritance. Maybe someone blesses you with some finance or some possessions or something like that. So that can be for all of us. Um, we can have an increase in some way. So this man had that. And he's wondering now what to do with his money, with his surplus, and what all that's happened. And so Jesus, um, please note, Jesus is sharing a parable here. A parable is uh, fictitious, that is a made-up story. Okay, however, but parables are never indulged in fantasy or the bizarre. They're always true to life. Okay, whenever Jesus told a parable, it's always true to life. And this um, presents, and this parable presents a good principle which is a simple truth and gives us a moral lesson to live by. And whenever Jesus shared a parable, he would be talking to people or a crowd of people, and he would be inviting people, inviting the listeners to insert themselves into the story. That's what we do. That's what they were doing. That's what Jesus wanted people to do, and that's what he wants us to do today. Insert us as in the story. And in this story, he wants us to think about what we would do with our money. Okay? So, pretty straightforward. Now, verse 19, we've finished right, we stopped reading there. And, so, and if we were to stop the parable right there, you could think, because the man says, eat, drink, and be merry. You know, you could be saying, well, Jesus is saying, just get a fat big bank account and, you know, live the rest of your life off that. And maybe that wouldn't be a terrible idea at all, because the man's not misusing his money. He's not going to some poker machine and spending thousands of dollars. No, he's made his he's made his money through his hard work. And so, uh, that you could say this man's living the dream. But Jesus, uh, 
Jesus doesn't say that. And in fact, um, things go from good to really bad quickly. Let's read verse 20 and 21. And God says to him, fool. <laughs> That's not a nice thing to be called. Fool. This night your soul will be required of you. Then those who, then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he. Now Jesus is speaking to everybody. So is he who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. Which is what exactly what Scott was talking about. Richness towards God. And realizing that there is eternity, isn't there? And we can't take it with us. So what, Jesus, what is Jesus seeking to do? I mean, is Jesus having a, a go at, uh, you know, is money a big problem? Or, or maybe is Jesus condemning people who are rich? Well, I, I, that, that would not be an incorrect misinterpretation of this parable because because we would be well aware that there is a wonderful group of people in the Bible, our heroes of the faith and role models of the faith that are quite rich and righteous at the same time. Moses was one, Abraham was one. Uh, there was a couple of ladies, Lydia, Dorcas, they were quite wealthy, had businesses. Um, but they were, they were rich, but they were righteous people. So it's possible to have money and to live right with money, have a good attitude about money. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, what he is saying is, is he's saying, um, why was this, you know, we've got to be careful because if we do as this rich man done, we may find one day a time suddenly comes upon us when we are seen as foolish. Why was the man seen as foolish? Well, the truth was, um, if we go a little deeper into this passage, you'll see clearly why he was seen as foolish and it's what and we'll see the core of his understanding about money, which is a dangerous understanding. Let me highlight it to you again, because there's an assumption this man makes about his his possessions and his money. And um, in just three verses, we can see it clearly. Let me read it to you and highlight this so we understand. In verse 17, he says, And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops and so he said, oh, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and I will store up my crops in my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many good days laid up for you, many years. Take easy, drink, and be merry. Can you see the pattern? I've emphasized it for effect, but can you see the pattern? He thought everything he owned belonged to him, folks. <laughs> and that may be a bit of a challenge to some today. I appreciate that. But I call it the ownership assumption, and that's my title, my, the ownership assumption. Eternity revealed him to be foolish. We can assume exactly the same thing sometimes, that everything I own is mine. And you might say, wait a second, you're confusing me here, because my name is, on, you can say, my name's on the top of the bank statements. My name is in my Visa debit card. Uh, my name is there, and everything with my name on it is mine. Uh, just hold it a moment. Uh, just bear with me for a sec, because there's two ways of looking at things. The first way is to look at what we have through the lens of ownership and say, well, it's all mine. I own it. But there's a second way of looking at it through the lens of stewardship. And when you look at it through the lens of stewardship, we can realize that me, my life, my possessions actually belong to my Heavenly Father and are meant to be invested for 
greater purposes than just everything I think up. Because how we answer the question of whether I think I own it or whether I think I don't own it determines how we handle and use our finance. And how we answer that question and whether I own it or not or don't own it we can be whether we are uh, wise with our wealth or foolish with our wealth. And so I want to just talk for a moment that we have here about this. You see, we see God has, as the owner. If, if God is the owner of all that we have, there's three things that a steward acknowledges and will live by. A good steward. I'm, not, I'm talking about a steward as in someone who, who looks after uh, someone else's stuff. Does that make sense? A steward as in someone who handles other, someone else's uh, estate. I'm at the moment, is I'm an, an executive for my mum's estate. Uh, my mum's, she passed away a couple of years ago, uh, well, you know, half ago or so, and I'm still looking, just finalising her estate now in this next financial year. It's taken quite a while, but I've tried to be good because I've, and I haven't actually kept it to myself, all of it, because I do have four other siblings. Who knows that's being a good steward. I'd be a bad steward if I just kind of swindled it all off them and kept it for myself. We've had to multiply it and I've had to break, you know, put it and send it to everybody, which has been fine with my family. We've real or cool about it. But, you know, I'm being a steward of someone else's. It's not mine to give away, but it's someone else's and that's what God's talking about here do you know and, he's, and I want to show you this morning very clearly why everything that we have is his really because the steward if you're a steward you acknowledge that with um all that we have belongs to the Lord here's the first thing every everything we have belongs to the Lord you know the truth is God just doesn't own our money he owns everything he owns you sometimes we well, might say what kind of what kind of god is that i tell you it's a god who lets you have a self-will and doesn't try to control you he just wants to realize that he can own you in the most genuine and beautiful way and direct your life sometimes we can think well god you're not getting my 10 percent. you know the tithe i've got some news for you this morning folks he owns the whole hundred <laughs> Paul actually said in, in Acts 27, 23, Paul was in a difficult situation. He's, he's, been sh- he's, he's being shipwrecked he's a, <laughs> on an island. And, you know, in the middle of that, um, he says this. He says, I, I belong to God. Acts 27, 20. What was Paul saying? In the middle of, uh, middle of one of the worst circumstances in his personal life where he could have drowned, he says, you know what? I'm not going to blame God for this circumstance. I just want you to know God. I belong to you, so you've got to look after me. And if it's not your will for me to die, I know that you can bring me through, which is exactly what happened. He brought him through safely. But the point is that he was declaring something. It's not, it's not just good to say, well, God, I'm in a difficulty. I, I'm yours. But other times, whenever life's going well, God, God, I just want to have my own life to myself. You know, I'll give you bits of my life, but not all of it. See, we, we see we've got to acknowledge that we belong to the Lord. It's not about me and mine, but understanding it's all His. And, and, and it's true that whenever we acknowledge that everything about me belongs to Him, the breath of my lungs, the blood running through my veins, my car, my house, if, if it all belongs to Jesus Christ, and the whole issue is not difficult to come to. The whole issue of giving is not a difficult thing then, if it was all His in the first place. Paul says in the church, to the church in Corinth, uh, Corinthians 1.4.7, he says, 
What do you have that you did not receive? Because everything we are and everything we have has been gifted by God. And whether we're, you know, the Bible actually says when we're born, we're a gift from the Lord. So quite simply, number one, it's really simple. This stewardship acknowledges that he or she belongs to the Lord. The second thing, a steward acknowledges that everything ultimately, everything belongs to the Lord. It's not just me, but everything around me. Everything around me. When we come into this world, we were born not with rings on our fingers and fine set of clothes. We were born naked, weren't we? And it's just interesting enough, generally, generally speaking, we're going to leave the world naked. Have you ever been to a funeral where behind the hearse they had this massive trailer with all the belongings of the person who died? You're not going to see it. <laughs> there was a man in America who was a multi-billionaire. He died. He, they dug this massive hole. They, put, they cremated him, put him in a bottle. He was on the front seat of his Cadillac and they buried the Cadillac in him in the, in, in, on the front seat. Can't take it with you. Would have been so much better if he just sold it and gave it to his family's inheritance or to some needy charity. You see, a steward acknowledges that everything ultimately, everything ultimately belongs to the Lord. Job, there's a guy called Job. He was he was a very rich man. He had some hard times. But in Job 41.11, he says, everything under heaven is mine, says God. <laughs> Job had lost it all. But mind you, as he surrendered to God, God just put it all back for him amazingly. It's an amazing story. Did you notice Job didn't say this? Oh, there's an exemption list. Your house, your bank account, and car are exempt. They can be yours, but I'll just take the rest. No, no, there's no exemption list. It's all his. Deuteronomy 10.14 says, Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God. Also, the earth with all that is in it belongs to him. This is a radical thinking because if you take this message into a world today, if I took this to Parliament and I stood up and I said in Parliament, just what I said, guys, everything that we have here is God's anyway. All that you own, all your finance, it's all God's. People would scream you down. This is a ridiculous, but this this is not a part of culture, is it? Because the culture is, it's mine. But ultimately, if we see that God has given it to us and we, we can be so much better in how we handle it. There's a little book in the Bible called Haggai. He's called the prophet, a little prophet, not a little man. He's just he's not big in what he says. Not a lot of chapters, and so. But he says this: Silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of Hosts. Even the gold and the silver. Yeah. And then James 1:16 and 17 says, "Do not be deceived, my." Beloved brothers and sisters, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. So a steward gladly acknowledges that I possess what I possess God owns. Not only do I, God, is it my life, but it also what I possess. And thirdly, the steward acknowledges their role is to faithfully oversee all that has been entrusted to them. See, that awareness motivates us to manage everything in our lives in a God-glorifying way. I hope and pray it will. We can hear people say, life is a gift. Well, it's, it, it is a gift, but it's a lot more than that because I think life is an entrustment. It's an entrustment. And if all we ever have, has been, if all we have has been entrusted to us, then the Bible says we have to give an account of that which has been given to us. Account of our lives, account of what we have. And I've come to understand that stewardship is not about a certain amount of money, 
whether you've got lots or little or somewhere in between. But stewardship is about an attitude of the heart and how we see the world and how we see the things that we have in this world. How do we see, see that? Rather than wondering how we should spend our time, our talent, our treasure, a steward rather asks this question, God, how shall I invest your time, your talent in me and your treasure in me in a way that meets the right, good, good desires, good outcomes in it for eternal purposes? And I have, to under, I have to come to understand that I can make much better decisions when I have first fully embraced the ownership assumption that God, it's all yours. I'm yours. And some of us say, well, that's a given. I understand that. But have you ever thought about it recently? Maybe not. I pray that it will make you realize today. You know, and so, you know, you know, God is very generous with us. God is very good because he'll let you make decisions about what he owns that he's given you. He doesn't, he doesn't have neon signs, you know, you know um, uh, up in the sky and say, don't buy that. He lets you make your own decisions. And sometimes when we make those decisions, they're bad decisions and sometimes they're good decisions. But God wants us to learn something from that. He wants us to learn to be wise because it's all His. He, he doesn't cut us off when we blow our money. He doesn't cut us off. He still welcomes us. But, you know, when I realize that all I have and all that I am and all that everything about me and my life and if my relationship is His, it helps me then to live a lot freer and to live with a more of a responsible attitude in how I spend and what I do with it. And this man in the parable, in, in the parable here, obviously thought, you know what? I've made a lot of money. I've struck it rich. I'm going to sit back and enjoy life. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying life. But if he only realized that there's another passage in the Scripture that says, you know, moth and rust will destroy. And you can imagine if storing it up in barns, quite literally what might have happened. But it was far worse than that because Jesus says his soul was required of him. What was that meaning? That was meaning that he didn't realize, but his life, on, his life was about to be not as long as he thought. And you know what? We need to seize every day and make the best of every day and be thankful for every day and realize that uh, life can suddenly come to a halt. I would hope it doesn't. I hope we all live to 110. You know, that'd be wonderful. In our right mind, in our right heart, it'd be great, wouldn't it? Maybe. But maybe just not all of us will. Statistically, that's the truth. And on your gravestone... It'll, it'll say your name and then it'll have some comforting words, but then it'll have a date or a year when you were born and then it'll have a year when you passed away, whether that's 110 years or 80, 90, whatever years it is. When you literally look at that gravestone, it's pretty short. It's On a gravestone, your whole life is fitted right there between, for me, 1963 to whatever it'll be, hopefully, I don't know. But it's pretty short compared to eternity, isn't it? And how we use the things that God's give us, why not use them wisely? Why not say, you know what, I, I, I need to be wise. And, you know, and, and I need to make sure that my heart is not devoted to something else. And that's something else Jesus warns us in Matthew 6.24. It can be 
possessions and finance and money. I, uh, I've discovered one of the most incredible ways to make sure that my heart stays in the right place, and that's just to continually be give, a giver and generous. Just because I find that when I, when I squirm about putting my hand in my pocket and giving to causes or to giving my tithe, which God says is a tenth, or to giving an offering, which is over and beyond that, if I'm starting to squirm about that, I'm something, oh, that kind of teaches me and says something about me that maybe my devotion is a little divided at least towards that and not fully on what God wants. I remember somebody gave me quite a substantial $5,000. Once I was like, wow, this is many, many, many years ago. I was so blessed. And, you know, I, I, and we didn't have a lot when I first got married. That was okay. We were all happy. But, you know, as soon as I got that five grand, I realized, oh, a tenth of that is 50. Is it 50? No, it's not. It's 500. <laughs> 500. You want me to give five? God, a, ten, a tithe is 500. So I remember that reluctance, and I thought, oh, shame on you, James. But, you know, that's reality. I've just been honest. But I gave it. And then when someone gave me, you know, a little bit more one time, I had to up the ante and tithe. And I thought, oh, Father. And so I had to realize that my devotion was a little divided between because I was grappling with the fact that I just, the truth is, when I had the five, I gave 500. I'm still four and a half thousand dollars ahead, aren't I? But aren't we so sometimes? Oh. Ah. The greatest thing that Jesus asks of us is to seek his riches. And you know what we were sharing earlier the richest life is to know and to live for Jesus Christ. One of the other things that money can say to us sometimes is you'll be happy when you have that, whatever that may be for you. Solomon worked it out because in the Bible, Solomon said, it's like a chasing the wind when you continually are saying, I'll be happy when I have that. And you get the 63-inch television and five years later, you want the 83-inch because you just feel that would make you happier. I've discovered it doesn't make, if you're not happy today where you are, you'll struggle to be happy tomorrow with it if you can't be happy without it. So happiness is not a thing. It's not located on what you got. It's located on who you are. Because your, your net worth is not, doesn't, it shouldn't be connected to your self-worth. Your self-worth is that wonderful self-esteem and identity and everything about you that's important that God gives you because it's not status of money that will give you that. It's a false world <laughs> sometimes. I know money can make you happy, but it won't keep you happy. Sometimes we always want more. So today, Jesus Christ is still the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus didn't say, my four-bedroom, double brick, two-car garage, ensuite. Um, what else could I add in there that I've ever lusted after? Um, <laughs> just being honest. Um, it won't, it won't be, the, it's not the way, the truth, and the life. It's Him. So we stand today, and I just, we'll close.
I just want to ask that question today in relation to Jesus. Where do you stand with him today? Because it just simply says in the Bible, Scott clearly shared it, believing in Jesus, belief in him and receiving him into your life. And the Bible actually says this. It says, confess with your mouth. Because if you're going to believe in your heart, there, is, there does need to come some kind of response. Um, and a confession's a great place to start. It's always going to be belief in the heart. That's the ultimate um, connection to believe. But it has to be confession. And, and today, I just want to pray a prayer with people today about that confession of Jesus. Confessing Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And that may be just the start of a journey for you. Maybe it's again that you need to do that in saying yes to Jesus. But I'd love the opportunity just to pray with you where you are today. And if, if could we close our eyes just to give everybody a moment of, of um, privacy. And, and, and if, if you just want to say yes to Jesus today, I'm not going to prolong this. But if this is what you need to do, I just want you to raise your hand today. Just sit, I'll see you. Put your hand down. And you're saying behind the hand is just a simple prayer. I, I want to pray with you today. Anybody today? Anybody today? I'll just wait a few seconds more. God is incredibly real. Incredibly, he has an incredible purpose for our lives. He has a love for you that is beyond anything you've ever experienced in this world. So I'll just ask once more, is anybody today just want to respond and say, yeah, include me in the, your prayer, James. Okay, let me pray. Father, I thank you for every life. I thank you for every gift that you've given. I say thank you that all that I am is yours. All that I have, all me, I'm yours, Lord. Everything I own is yours. Everything around me is yours. Uh, and I thank you for that because you are incredibly generous to me and look after me and us. You're a provider for us. We thank you. Oh, God, but Lord, help us never to make that the thing that is the devotion of our heart. Help us to keep right perspective on that. And putting you first and not that. Because that will never satisfy as we've come to understand. But you do. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, let's worship for a moment this morning, church. the same God. 
This morning, I just wanted to, um, uh, we're going to close in a moment. Uh, but, you know, if there is a need, you just know within your body, just for God's touch, a healing, uh, the physical, uh, emotional, whatever. I, I just love us to come and stand and pray. Uh, now, I'm going to close the meeting before we do that. And you're welcome to go and you know, the order uh, for you in that. But if there's a need uh, within body, mind, spirit today, if we just were to stand together, I welcome you to this front and let's just pray commit that to God believe for his working power we could sing this song and that we could walk away but it says he's a healing God and I believe that and so uh, you're welcome this morning have a great day uh, and uh, be blessed but if you desire prayer we're here right now that'd be great